The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and I am delighted today to welcome Dr. David Walinga. Dr. Walinga is the Senior Advisor in Science, Food, and Health at the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy based in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Dr. Walinga uniquely uses a systems lens to think about health impacts of food and how it is produced, processed, packaged, and distributed in today's global industrialized food system and how our production methods actually influence public health. So uh, without further ado, welcome, Dr. Walinga. Well, it's my pleasure to be here. You have had such a great influence on the way dietitians think in terms of looking at the food production environment. You've looked at high fructose corn syrup and mercury contamination. You've looked at antibiotics in animal agriculture. And you've looked at arsenic, the new arsenic study, both in the chicken feed and also in brown rice syrup. So there are many routes of contamination in our food system. So let's touch on some of those, especially as they relate to the young and developing brain. That sounds great. All right. So let's talk about one of your latest studies. This was published um, early in April. It was a study that linked autism with industrial food and the environment. And you were one of uh, multiple authors on this paper. But you cited the CDC's new statistics on autism, and you looked specifically at contaminants in the food environment. So what are the new statistics with autism? Well, they're, they're really alarming. What the CDC said is that what they did was they're estimating the prevalence of disorders on the autism spectrum. So that's generally what people talk about in terms of autism. There's full-blown autism and then something called Asperger's syndrome and then a pervasive developmental disorder. But in general, CDC was looking at the change in the prevalence of those things in children over just a six-year period from 2002 to 2008. And so what they determined based on the network of that they collect such information from was that there was almost a doubling, a 71% increase over those six years of children with uh, autism spectrum disorders. So when, just to give you an idea, in 2002, that number would have been about six and a half children per thousand. In 2008, CDC is saying it's more than 11 children per thousand, Hmm. which, I mean, that's not only a big increase, but if you think about the impact on the families and the fact that behavioral interventions for those families for one kid can cost on the order of forty to $60,000 per year and that there's just enormous cost to schools as well, that this is really significant. What's going on, do you think? Well, I I don't think we actually know completely, and and there's a lot of reasons for that. I think that people like Dr. Martha Herbert from Harvard just came out with a book 
And it points out that what we diagnose as autism spectrum disorders are probably a lot of different things, which we lump under the same label, but actually every child's unique, but also different versions of these disorders are fairly different as well. And so for each of those things, there might be a different set of factors, but the general thing that parents and others should be aware of is that there's no single magic bullet explanation for this. It's a very complicated set of disorders with a lot of both environmental and nutritional and uh, uh, genetic factors and involved. And, and the combination of those things from kid to kid is going to differ. Mm-hmm. Well, for many years, there was a fear of having children vaccinated. And I believe that that's pretty much been disputed, that we're not linking vaccines to autism anymore, and we're looking more in terms of environmental contaminants outside the vaccination route. Would you agree? Yeah, I think that the trying to shoehorn the whole problem into a vaccine question was really too narrow, and it sort of missed the point, which is, is this complexity. And when we're talking about environment, we're talking about basically everything other than the genetic material that we're inheriting. Right. So it's, it, you know, what our mother ate when we were in the womb. It's what we eat when we're just born. It's what's in our breast milk and our infant formula. It's the pollution around us, both in the home and in the broader environment. You know, all these things can combine. And I think what we're, the, the science around the set of disorders is changing really rapidly. So if folks are confused, it's because, uh, in part, the scientific community is constantly having to rethink what they know about autism. And so, but I think one, one thing you can say about the evolution of the science is that we're starting to flesh out this basic model for how what we inherit in terms of our genes then interacts with what we're exposed to in our broader food and personal and community environments. Mm-hmm. There was just a list published in Environmental Health Perspectives with It actually came from the National Institute for Environmental Health Sciences, and it was a list of 10 individual items that were linked to an increase in autism, ranging from lead to methylmercury, PCBs, certain kinds of pesticides, endocrine disruptors. They've been targeted extensively. But then things like automotive exhaust, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, flame retardants, and so on. So there is a mix of chemicals. And Oftentimes we look for one individually and maybe not so much looking at all the different interactions. And I don't know that we have enough years left in our life to really look at all the different interactions that are possible. Well, that's a good point. I recommend this editorial you're referring to. It's a couple of scientists that have been looking at these issues for a long time, and including one who's the director of the NIH's Environmental Institute, Linda Birnbaum, and they point out that this industrial environment that we've created around ourselves through the products we make and the, you know, the exhaust from, from cars and diesel trucks, if you look at it in its totality, it's created something like 80,000 industrial chemicals on the market. And not all of those are being produced, but 
you know, many thousands uh, are produced in huge amounts. And of those, only a very few have ever been evaluated for their impact uh, on the young or developing brain like in a fetus. But already, you know, like you said, we've been looking at these questions for decades. So, you know, we know a lot about some of them, like lead. We know a lot about mercury. We know a lot about things like PCBs and dioxins. But more and more, we're learning that other kinds of chemicals, too, can have effects just like lead, just like mercury, on the young brain. So organophosphate pesticides, uh, which are still very widely used. Things like bisphenol A and other endocrine-disrupting chemicals, some of which are in food packages, mm-hmm. some of which used to be in baby bottles. Thankfully, that's mostly been phased out. And in fact, a few years ago, Dr. Landrigan, another author of this study, said that we, we can say with pretty good certainty that something like 200 different industrial chemicals like these are known to be toxic to the young and developing brain. Now, each of those has been looked at mostly one by one. What nobody has done, and in fact it would be next to impossible to do, is to think about and quantify what our exposure to, to, to that mixture of 200 or 150 or whatever it is, different brain toxic chemicals means for a child. And again, every child is different. So if you've got a kid who happens, by luck of the draw, to come from a family that seems to be more susceptible mm-hmm. to these kinds of brain injuries, they might manifest some problems like, you know, autism or ADHD or some other kind of learning disability. Whereas another kid down the street with exactly the same exposures would not develop those problems. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting. This latest study that in which you're one of the authors, is published in a journal called Clinical Epigenetics. Right. We should talk about epigenetics because it's fascinating. What, yes. what is it? Well, it, it, it's not the easiest thing to explain, but, but I'll give it a shot. Okay. Uh, epigenetics is really a new understanding of how genes interact with environments that really threatens to overturn some of our most basic assumptions about our health. I'll give you the upshot first, and then I'll work backwards. The upshot is that the genes are the sequence of proteins and DNA in our body that kind of works as the instruction book for our cells, right? Mm -hmm. But the environment around the genes basically determines when those instructions get read, if they get read, and and how that those instructions are uh, translated into the machinery of the body. So that machinery does things like causes the body to manufacture proteins that will detoxify or eliminate pollutants from the body. So you can see how important those sorts of instructions are. Well, it turns out that this environment around the genes, what they call the epigenome mm-hmm. uh, or epigenetics, can be maybe just as important as the genes themselves, if not more important. Mm-hmm. And in fact, that environment is something that you acquire over time, either from your mother in the womb, 
from what you eat, from the chemicals you're exposed to, even from just stress. Mm-hmm. Feeling stress in your life, like growing up in a really violent, poor neighborhood, that kind of stress, can change the environment around your genes and therefore change the way those genes get read and translated into functions of the body's machinery. Now, the, the really mind-blowing piece of this is that genes aren't the only thing we can inherit. We can actually inherit the environment around the genes over generations. So what my grandfather ate or my grandmother ate could have changed the environment around their genes, and that environment could have been passed down to me. You know, I was just going to mention that. I was at a meeting about pesticides, and one of the presenters there spoke about how, you know, the mother is exposed, the changes are made in the child's genetic nature, and then those changes are passed on. The one presenter said up to four times, four generations have been tracked. Right. And now, a lot lot of this new research is happening in animals because it's easy to watch four generations in animals. You can imagine it would be a hell of a lot harder to look at four generations of people. You'd need a 150-year lifespan. But we are seeing some evidence that the exact same thing is going on in people, and and that makes sense. Now, a lot of people get kind of overwhelmed by this and sort of despairing, but let me turn it around and, and show you how hopeful this is. Good. If we can ask ourselves, what is the environment that I need to raise my child in, starting even before they're in the womb, that will create the healthiest possible setting in which their genes can play out and determine their health over the course of their life? If we can ask that question and answer it and start creating that healthy environment, it may bear dividends not only for my offspring, but for the grandchildren of my offspring. Mm-hmm. That, that my great-grandchildren may reap the benefits of the efforts that I put in today to improve the environment as I'm getting pregnant or as my wife's getting pregnant. Mm-hmm. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Dr. David Walenga. He is the Senior Advisor in Science, Food, and Health at the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy based in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And I just want to add that Dr. Walenga, from 2009 to 2010, was a William T. Grant Foundation Distinguished Fellow in Food Systems and Public Health at the University of Minnesota School of Public Health. Dr. Walenga, I have to ask you a question because... This is a fascinating discussion, and you're right. There is hope in that that what we do today will have long-lasting impacts on a positive side as well as negative. Right. But one of the issues that was brought up in your paper it spoke about how our diet is is increasingly deficient in micronutrients, and that in combination, so we've got these deficiencies in combination with exposures to toxic chemicals, and there's there's almost a synergistic reaction there. Well, it's not almost synergistic. It It is. If if this model bears out, that's exactly what it is. By synergy, we mean that, you know, these things aren't happening independently. They're they're constantly influencing one another. So, for example, it turns out we focused in on one example, which is a 
metallothionine gene. And metallothionine is a is a compound that our body uses to help eliminate heavy metals from the body. And and if you think heavy metals are things like lead or arsenic or mercury that we already know quite a bit about, and they've got a lot of bad effects, including effects in this young brain. And so you want to have machinery in your body that's fully functional at getting rid of these things because our exposure to them is inevitable, whether it's lead in paint or, you know, mercury in the food supply and fish or walleyes or whatever we're eating. So the problem is that you need things like zinc at optimal levels in your body to get the full function of metallothionine at helping to eliminate these toxins. So if you happen to have a diet that's deficient in zinc, you're not going to be as good at detoxifying your body maybe as as you would be otherwise. Mm-hmm. And what we tried to do in this paper is pull together all the different strands like zinc sufficiency in the American diet, exposure to toxic chemicals, And then finally, the fact that some of the novel ingredients in this new American diet that we have, like high fructose corn syrup, at least in some cases, appear to deplete the body of things like zinc. And so uh, even if you start off deficient, if you've got a diet that's quite high in high fructose corn syrup and you're one of these susceptible people, it might actually deplete you even further and by implication impair even more your ability to dump things like heavy metals from your body. Now, kids are different, one kid to another. So are we saying that this is what's happening across the whole population? No, there's no way you could say that. We're saying that it could be a set of circumstances that's occurring in some of the kids, and there seems to be some data that at least pieces of this are happening in the population of children with autism. So there's a lot, given the complexity, there's always going to be more research to be done to try and see to what extent this is happening or to figure out the nuances of it. What we laid out was kind of a thought model for how it might be happening. Mm -hmm. And it does kind of behoove us to ask the question, if this is happening, are there things we can do across the community maybe through policy to make sure that kids aren't zinc deficient, to make sure that kids aren't being exposed to too much high fructose corn syrup, to to make sure that kids don't have the body load of lead or mercury or other heavy metals that we know are already so abundant in our environment. Mm -hmm. It's wonderful that you are a physician who also looks at agriculture policy, because ultimately it's agriculture policy that dictates really what's on our plate. And I know you've spent a lot of time looking at the Farm Bill, for example. So if you now, you're looking at the Farm Bill through a physician's lens, what would you change about the Farm Bill to lead to healthier environments for children as they develop? Well, the the Farm Bill for those who don't know, is this huge piece of legislation, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars, and it really does, more than any other piece of law, dictate how our food is produced, what food's produced, and ultimately what people eat. So I would say there's two major things. One is that 
making sure that Americans eat good food produced in good ways, healthy ways, has never been a goal of the Farm Bill. Okay? Health has never been a goal of the Farm Bill per se. The Farm Bill was really designed on the farm side to, to provide support to farmers, regardless of what they produce, so, and, and more often than not, to produce commodities like feed grains. Mm-hmm. A big part of the Farm Bill is the food stamp program. And in that case, it really wasn't so much about uh, ensuring that food stamp recipients are eating healthy food. It was more about uh, explicitly about supporting their income because a lot of these folks need income support in order to be able to feed their families. So I, I would more explicitly look at what's in the Farm Bill in terms of ensuring that we have not only food at the table that's healthy, but also that we have farmers growing that and that we're incentivizing farmers to growing it. Because right now, nothing could be further from the truth. If you're a well-meaning farmer and you want to grow fruits or vegetables or walnuts, there's not much in the farm bill for you. And In fact, in many cases, it actually disincentivizes those kinds of things from being grown. Now, the second thing, and more of a at a political level, is that who writes the Farm Bill for decades has mostly been legislators primarily from rural districts and rural states. And so there's been this disconnect. It's not been the Senate Health Committee. It's not been physicians and others with an interest in health. It's been agricultural interests which have written the Farm Bill, and that continues till this morning because right now the Senate is marking up its version of the Farm Bill for 2012. Mm-hmm. And one of the, Senator Leahy from Vermont, had a proposal for this Farm Bill that would have directed the U.S. Department of Agriculture, for example, to send a report to Congress on the health impacts of the Farm Bill. And I think the jury is still out on whether that amendment's even going to get into the bill. What a shame. If it doesn't. Can we, as health professionals and consumers make a difference in terms of how how farmers are rewarded for what they grow and how they produce it. You know, sometimes I think we feel so disempowered. And yeah. I, I want to leave our listeners with messages of hope always. You yeah. know, I, I want to give a dose of reality, but I also want to say, wait, we can make a difference. We still live in a democracy. What can we do? Right. Well, you know, the good news is that we can. We definitely can. People listen to health professionals about things like this, just like they did about tobacco. So our power collectively, our power individually is huge. Our power collectively is even bigger. You know, there's there's at least 2 million health professionals, probably a lot more. And if we spoke as one voice about some of these things, they would move in a hurry. Mm-hmm. But moreover, we have to. We have to try to make a difference because we can't afford as a country or for patients not to. People are simply too sick from chronic disease that's diet-related to let things continue. And and the situation's not getting better. It's getting worse. You know, between the pollution and the unhealthy nature of the calories that the average American eats, things are getting worse. And in the meantime the farmers who might produce a different kind of food system are disappearing. Right. So we, we have to be engaged, and we have to be engaged at every level, 
So probably the quickest way to make a difference is to go to a school board meeting. Be the physician or the nurse or the dietitian who stands up and says, if we want our schools not to leave any child behind, don't we have to be feeding them brain food so that they can actually learn? Stand up at the city council and say, you know, what what kind of a environment are we creating for raising our kids? Can they walk to school? You know, can they get the exercise and feel safe in it? Can they ride their bike to the farmer's market and make that a destination? And then maybe the toughest nut is things like the farm bill, and yet the stakes are so huge. So their individuals can still make a difference. You know, a few phone calls from you or I or our friends to our elected officials saying, hey, you know what, we see patients in our practices suffering from this unhealthy food system, and we want to do something about it. We want you to do something about it. Then we can make a difference in things like the farm bill. But it's not going to happen overnight, and it, it won't happen this morning. If, you, if you, people want to know more about how to do this, though, we're part of an effort called Healthy Food Action. Mm-hmm. And it, it's to create this new umbrella for folks who are in the health professions, who are foodies, who want to see a healthier food system. But you know and I know that the AMA or, or the nurses, they've got other fish to fry. They're worried about things like Medicare or health insurance rates. So foods, you know, they might be interested in it, but it's often not their top priority. So for healthy food action, it is, it is the top and only priority to see healthy food uh, grown in healthy ways. Uh, Dr. Willingo, would you like to recommend a couple of websites where people can go for more information? Uh, sure. Um, I'll, I'll give you Healthy Food Action's website is uh, healthyfoodaction.org. All right. My, my organization's website is the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. That's IATP.org. And we've got a whole series of what's at stake brochures and the farm bill, if the listeners want to learn more about that. Then Johns Hopkins University has the Center for a Livable Future, which is an excellent resource on all things food and farming. And then uh, we haven't talked at all about antibiotics, but another great resource around the use of antibiotics in meat production is is keepantibioticsworking.org. Wonderful. Well, I just want to thank you so much for your work. And I, I want to specifically mention your site on the Institute of Agriculture for Tra- and Trade Policy website. If you go to www.iatp.org, go to Food and Health, and there is a, there are a series of articles by Dr. Walinga, documents and a blog that can that speak about also your work with antibiotic resistance, which is huge, which would be another interview. But high fructose corn syrup, farm subsidies and how they relate to obesity and public health. It's all here in understandable language. And I want to thank you for being a physician who understands the connection between agriculture, food, and health. It's a refreshing partner in our healthcare team. And so um, thank you. And thank you for being my guest as well. Well, thank you. It's it's been my pleasure. In closing, I want to remind our listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios by Dan Hemmelgarn. 
in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. We've been speaking with Dr. David Walenga. He is the Senior Advisor in Science, Food, and Health at the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. I encourage you again to go to the website, www.iatp.org. Click on Food and Health, and you'll be linked into all of the topics we've been talking about, plus more. Thank you again, Dr. Walenga. Thank you, Melinda.